Alright, we are having, there we go. I can hear myself now. I don't know about you guys, but I was really blessed by that worship. When you think about nothing compares to what we have in Jesus. And when we think about how great He is and how wonderful He is, it changes our everything. Amen? We're going to be in Philippians 2, if you'll go ahead and turn there. For those of you just joining us, we've been doing a whole series through the book of Philippians. And kind of our series theme is the pursuit of joy. That you can have joy no matter what, as long as you keep your focus on Jesus, no matter what the circumstances are. Last week we talked about joy jammers and how there are certain things in your life that can jam up joy. There are certain things like selfishness. How I many you remember the fish? Those of you who weren't here, we had a fish on stage and I said whenever you... You think of selfish, you think of fish, you think of smelly fish. And the thing about a fish, everyone around the fish can smell it except the fish. Whenever you're selfish, everyone knows you are except yourself. So that, that can be a challenge. So today we're going to discuss one of the greatest passages in the whole Bible, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And kind of a little background of this, uh, many scholars believe this is an early hymn that perhaps predates any of the other New Testament writings, and Paul includes it in this. In the original Greek, it flows like a hymn, and it's about how Christ from all eternity was God. And it talks about how he is, he was, he was so amazing, but yet he didn't cling on to his rights, and he was willing to lay that aside. So today, we're going we're to talk about the theology of that, but we're going to get very practical. And today's message is called Change your mind change your life. How many of you realize that attitude is about 90% of everything? I was reading a quote by Chuck Swindoll. He says, the older that I get, the more that I realize that life is 10% of what happens to you and 90% of your, about your attitude of what happens to you. And I think Chuck Swindoll is very right. Someone once said, if you keep on saying things are going to be bad, you have a good chance of being a prophet. So if you keep on dwelling on negative, guess what's going to happen? Negative, right? So I was reading about two two people, one person named Jim Smith and another one named Ron Jones. They do not go to Arden first, by the way. So they both uh, went to this church, and uh, Jim Smith heard a teenager talking during prayer time, and he was really perturbed. He's like, I can't believe in the house of God there's talking during prayer. And then he saw someone get up when they shouldn't get up, and then... He noticed the ushers were looking at how much was in the plate. And then he noticed, he got upset about that. And then he noticed the pastor mispronounced five words during his sermon, God forbid. But he butchered the English language and five words were mispronounced. And during the closing hymn of invitation, Mr. Smith got up, left, and under his breath he said, What a bunch of hypocrites, I'll never go to that church again. The other gentleman, his name was Ron Jones. And the choir that day sang a mighty fortress is our God. And he just said that song just took him into the presence of God. And he was really moved by the song. He was really excited that the church was taking up a special offering for the people in Nigeria. Because he has a heart for, for missions. And uh, he really appreciated the sermon because it answered a question that he struggled with. And he didn't notice the choir missed a beat. He didn't notice the pastor mispronounce words. And he walked out saying, how could anyone not feel the presence of God in this church today? Ironically, they both went to the same church. It's what you're looking for. Whatever you look for, that you'll find. So today we're going to talk about how your attitude 
is so important. We're going to talk about having the mind of Christ. In today's culture, it's interesting how we talk. You ever ask somebody, how are you, what today? How are you feeling today? And we use a lot of words like feeling. How does that make you feel? And we, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but the, the challenge is we base a lot of what we do on feelings. So I, I, unknowingly, I thought about it. The number one question I ask my family is what? What's on your mind today? <laughs> Every day, what's on your mind? Because feelings change. And if you're like most people, your feelings are like roller coasters. They go up and down and all around. So how you're feeling depends upon the moment, right? And all the husbands said, Nothing, because <laughs> get myself in trouble today. Well, so sometimes men can be emotional too, but so feelings come and go, and you know your thought life is what really matters. You know, I was thinking about it. They have lie detector tests, and they can detect to high capability whether someone's lying or not. What would it be like if they had an attitude detector test? You ever thought about that? I wonder if you would pass the attitude detector. The truth is we all have an attitude. It's whether we have a good one or a bad one. So I was writing a few different contrasts. Um, some of us are optimists and some of us are pessimists. Some of us are hopeful and some of us are doubtful. I think of uh, Eeyore and Tigger on Winnie the Pooh. Eeyore was very depressive and doubtful. Uh, Tigger was always hopeful. Uh, we can have a warm attitude or a cold attitude. You ever met somebody in a grocery store and it just seemed like they were cynical and depressive and you're like, God bless you, I'll pray for you. (laughs) Um, We can have a faithless or a faithful attitude. So today we're going to kind of give you a preview as we jump into this text. We're going to get theological, we're going to talk about what the passage means. But in the context, Paul is being very practical here because he's telling the Philippian church to be united no matter what the circumstances be together. And he's given an example a theological example so they could practically live it out. So let's pray and then we'll jump into God's word. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that we can have the mind of Christ if we allow Christ to invade our thought process and the way we think and our attitudes towards things. So Father, as we look into this amazing hymn of the early church, as we talk about this hymn and how it points us to the deity of Jesus Christ and how he was co-equal and is co-equal with the Father. And I just pray that we would, we would grasp some of the great truths along with help us to be able to have practical application as we leave the place today saying, man, I was really encouraged, I was really challenged to have the attitude of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Now God's children said, amen. So as we get ready to jump into the text, I want everyone to take out your cell phone. We do this occasionally. Some of you already have your cell phone out. And I want you to either text this to somebody or post it on Facebook if you have Facebook. For those of you who don't text, you can just watch the person next to you. But I want you to text four letters, and if you forget, it's in your bulletin. It's A-S-H-R, A-S-H-R, and say, I'll tell you later after the service. You've got to leave them in suspense, then turn your phone on silent, because they're going to be messaging you, like, why are you messaging me in church? Ideally, text someone who's not in church or someone that's not here today. They're on Labor Day vacation. They're at the beach. Um, George and uh, some of the others are fishing in Montana and other places. But, you know, text them and say, A-S-H-R. I'll tell you later. So, um, A-S-H-R. Don't text my phone, by the way, because if it does, Lord, you have to turn it off. It'll blow up. All right. So, I'll give you just a second. And then put your phones away and we're going to jump into the text. 
So, Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. If you have your Bibles, you can read along or you can look on the screen if you don't have your Bible today. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. I love verse 9. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and on those on earth and those under the earth. And you're like, what is those under the earth? Well, most people think it's referring to those who had already died. So people who are living, people who are yet to live and people who have died, everybody's going to confess Jesus is Lord. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this passage is, like I said, one of the most important passages in the Bible. And we're going to unpack some of, some of the things. But just to give you kind of a preview, this passage asserts that Jesus is God. And he's co-equal with the Father. So that's, that's a pretty big thing. Because a lot of people will say, well, Jesus was a good prophet but he's not really God. And I love the way C.S. Lewis kind of phrases it. You know, Jesus was either Christ or he was a con man. He can't be either because a good person doesn't lie, right? No one would say a good person lies. So if Jesus said, I'm God, and he wasn't, he was either God or he was a con person. And we as Christians believe that he was who he said he was. He was God. So if, you, if you'll read along with me, verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You can change your mind and change your life, but number one, the A is for attitude. We need to get an attitude adjustment. And as soon as I say that, some of you are saying, man, I wish my teenager and my grandchild was here. Um, but that's true for all of us. I love how Paul starts it off, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Isn't it hard to think about having the mind of Christ. I don't know about you, but when I think about that, that seems almost impossible. How could I, as fallen as I am, have the mind of Christ? How is that even possible? The only way we could answer that is the only way to have the mind of Christ is if Jesus lives inside of you through the person of the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, as long as you allow him to lead your life, you will begin to think like Jesus thinks. Now, the truth is, as soon as a person becomes a Christian and we become a Christian by receiving Christ and asking him to forgive us, the Holy Spirit moves inside your life. But the problem is you still have the old nature. You still have the Bible calls the old man. And whichever one you feed is the one that will win out. So if you start your day and it's the tyranny of the urgent, you're so busy, you've got meetings, you've got appointments, you rush from this place to that place. And you haven't taken a moment to bow your head and give the day to God and pray and read a scripture. Who do you think is starting the day off? In the flesh or in the spirit? In the flesh, right? And every day it's a challenge. So my advice is, if you have a busy life like most of you do, set your alarm clock even ten minutes earlier than normal. Have the coffee, if you drink coffee, on automatic brew so that when you wake up, you can have those encounters with God before you have your first encounter with the person outside of your family. When you go to the work, you've already met with Jesus. 
So Fanny Crosby, many of you are familiar with her. She was born blind, and yet she lived to be 95 years old. Now, this is a poem that she wrote when she was eight. Now, when I, when I read this, I'm like talking about thinking like Jesus thinks. She says, oh, what a happy soul I am. Keep in mind, she's blind. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world contended I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot nor I won't. And I'm like eight years old, blind, having that perspective. I think that's really the essence of having the mind of Christ. When you think about the mind of Christ, you think of loving, you think of compassionate, you think of holy, you think of dedicated. Now, church folk, can, can we talk for a moment? Can we talk? Um, imagine if I could take any of her thoughts, myself included, over the past week, and I could edit them down. Let's say I hired a production um, an editor, and he took the very worst 30 minutes of your thought life over the past week. And we decided we're going to have a Sunday night live celebration, and it's going to be your thought life, the worst thoughts of the past week. Now, how many of you would want the whole church to come and listen to your 30-minute movie? Crickets in church. The reason why is the mind of Christ is, is really challenging to have. The good news for Christians is this, having a wrong thought in and of itself is a temptation. It's what you do with it. So here, here's the victory for Christians. If you have a bad thought and you kick it out, you have not sinned at that point. It's when you let it dwell there. It's when you let it fester there. So a lot of times Christians get tripped up by having a wrong thought and you think you're sinning. But that wrong thought is the temptation. It's what you do with it. Martin Luther once said, you can't stop a bird from flying above your head, but you can stop it from building a nest in your hair. So in other words, you can have the mind of Christ by resisting some negative thoughts. So let's let's talk about how to renew your attitude. You know, we all have an attitude. It's a good one or a bad one. But I want to give you guys some practical things about how do we have the mind of Christ. The first point is renew your mind daily. Renew your mind daily. If you want to be able to think with the mind of Christ, one has to be able to renew his or her mind every day. And how do we do that? Well, it's very simple. God wants to talk to you every day. He wants to have a living, dynamic relationship. And he does that through two primarily resources every day, through the Bible and through prayer. God talks to us through the Bible, and he talks with us through prayer. And I want to encourage you guys that God's very accessible if we will just reach out and talk to him. My wife's on the front row here, and uh, one of her love languages is words of affirmation. Anybody else have that love language? Words of affirmation. Another one is quality time. So you see where I'm going here. In order to have my wife's love tank full, I have to talk and I have to spend time. It's hard for guys because we love to check out. We love to watch the show. And hold on a second, baby. The greatest thing ever invented was DVR on a TV. You can pause it. All right, you got my full attention and we can talk. But imagine if I realized that's her love language and I was like, okay, I'm going to go a whole day without talking to my wife. She would think something's bad wrong with me, like I died or something if, if I didn't talk to her in a day. Like if, if I was at work and all of a sudden my phone, I didn't pick up her calls, she couldn't get a hold of me. And I wonder how the Lord feels when he wants to have this talk, relationship with us and we're like, too busy, God. It's like we need, to, we need to really realize that he wants to talk with us and he wants to have that relationship with us. 
So renew your mind daily. Number two, this is very practical. Surround yourself with godly people, positive people weekly. So I got to renew my mind daily and I got to surround myself with godly, positive people weekly. Notice I said godly and positive. Have you ever met anybody that was godly but not positive? That's, I don't, is that possible? But I've seen a lot of church people that love the Lord, but it seems like they're just trying to hold on until Jesus comes. And I'm like, Jesus came to give you life. And it, it's almost like you've been baptized in lemonade. You know, it's like, come on, where's the joy of the Lord? So I think if you surround yourself with godly, positive people, that will help you renew your mind and begin to think like Jesus. And that's why I really think, uh, as we think about fall coming in, that's why going to church is so important. You know, it sounds really um, basic, but the Bible says that we're not to forsake gathering together as some are in the habit of doing. And here's the thing about it. Just think about it practically. How many of us would miss work? Most of us would, right? Because if you miss work, what happens? Too many days, you get fired, right? How many of us would miss a meal? <laughs> Looking around, we look pretty well fed, right? How many of us would miss an important doctor's appointment? Okay, most people say probably not. But how many of us miss our appointments with God? And from an eternal perspective, which is the highest priority? Obviously, our time with God. So I would encourage you, as, as we launch back into the school season, everyone get back in a routine, don't miss your appointments with God because he wants to spend time with you. And the third way to have an attitude of adjustment is serve others frequently. Serve others frequently. This whole passage we're talking about is how Jesus did not hold on to his rights as God, but he was willing to lay those aside, his rights and privileges, so he could serve. I've heard it said, if you're not serving, you're swerving. If you're not serving, you're spiritually swerving. It's going to get you off track. So if you want to go to a whole new altitude this year, this fall season coming up, you're going to have to have a whole new attitude. You're going to have to learn to think like Jesus thinks. Amen? All right, that was just verse 5. We better speed it up here a little bit. So the first A was for attitude. The S is for sacrifice. Give up in order to go up. Give up in order to go up. Look at verse 6. It says, Who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God. So here's this great theological truth. Jesus was God. It says being in the form of God. What, what that verse means in the original language is that from all eternity, the eternal Son of God was co-equal with the Father. And that's, that's a mind that as Christians we're, we're familiar with, but people that are new to the church life are like, okay, explain the Trinity. How, is, how does that work? You have one God, but three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And people throughout time have tried to explain the Trinity, but no one can fully explain it because it, it's a God thing. You can't really grasp your mind around it. The best illustration I've ever heard is, and it doesn't fully explain it, because like I said, it can't be fully explained, but water. A simple scientific experiment. If you have water in a drinkable form, it's a liquid, right? If you put it in the freezer, it becomes a solid. And if you put it on the stove, it becomes a vapor or gas. Three different forms of H2O, but it's still H2O. And it's like with the Godhead, you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They're both equal. They've existed throughout eternity, and yet they're one God. That's, that's hard to wrap your mind around. But something I want to get, get here is, um, this is, this is something you can ask someone later. Um, this is a question to think about. 
Who is the only person ever born that was older than his parents? Everything about that? It's Jesus, right? He was the only person ever born that was older than his parents because he's existed throughout eternity. Now, having said that, a way to understand this passage, I, I mentioned this a few months ago, but I had a professor that really tripped up the whole class. He asked the question, when did Jesus become Jesus? And all of us grew up in church and we're like, Jesus has always been Jesus, right? And the professor said, wait a second, Jesus was the eternal son of God, but in Matthew, when he took upon a human body, that's when he became Jesus. But he always existed as the second person of Trinity before that. Does that make sense? That's like, at first you're like, wait a second. So the, these theological truths are hard to wrap your mind around, but basically the, the best way to understand this complicated passage is not God minus anything, it's God plus something. It's God plus a human body. It's God taking on the form of, of taking on a human body and becoming a person. So if you have your notes, I'm going to give you a few cross-references to jot down. We don't have time to go into, but John 1.1 basically says that Jesus is God. And the Word is with God. The Word was God. In Colossians 1.15, it says Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. So everything you want to know about God, you can see in Jesus. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, it says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. So in other words, Jesus is God. And that, that sounds pretty fundamental for Christians, but we, we can't, we can't uh, lose track of that. So I was reading a story about um, King Cyrus. Many of you have heard of him. He was the founder of the Persian Empire. And King Cyrus, it was interesting that he got this prince and he captured this prince and his family in this war situation and all of a sudden um he asked the guy he's like if i let you free what would you give me and the guy said well i'll give you half of all my wealth if you'll let me go free this guy was very wealthy i said i'll give you half of everything i own he said okay what about if i let your kids go what would you give me he said i'll give you everything i own if you let my kids go so what if i let your wife go free and he said if you let my wife go free i will give you myself and King Cyrus, according to history, according to the story, he, he was so moved by this guy's devotion for his family that he said, because of your love for your family, I'll let you go. And as this guy and his family were traveling back to their home country, he looked at his wife and he said, wasn't uh, King Cyrus a good-looking guy? I mean, very handsome, strong. And the wife looked into his eyes and said, I didn't notice him at all. My eyes were fixed on the one who was going to give his life for me. And I think that's what we see here in this text, that Jesus was willing to sacrifice everything. The picture you see up there is of King Frederick William III of Prussia. And uh, it's an interesting stare, isn't it? He's serious. I guess people didn't smile back in the 1500s or 1800s. So the situation in Persia, Prussia is they, they were in trouble. Prussia had spent a lot of money in wars and the, com- the country was going bankrupt. And King Frederick William III basically realized, i got to do something because if we don't have some financial resources, we're going to have to give in to the enemy. And I do not want to surrender to the enemy. So he had this great idea. He called all the women of Prussia. And he said, listen, ladies, I know you've got gold jewelry, you've got gold necklaces, earrings. He said, I want you, those who are willing, to donate all your gold jewelry for Prussia. Give all your gold jewelry and we're going, we're going to melt it down. We're going to use it to fund our country. 
So believe it or not, women came in droves donating all their gold, um, beautiful uh, heirlooms they had. And basically, he would exchange bronze, a necklace of cross or iron, in exchange for this gold. And on the inscription, we actually have a an artifact here. It says 1813. It says, I gave gold for iron, 1813. And it became so overwhelming to these ladies that they basically decided not to wear jewelry anymore, but they wore that cross because it was in service of their king and their country. And the ladies cherished that more than they did their gold. And the author said when Christians come to their king, they too exchange the flourishes of their former life for a cross. We're willing to give up everything in this world because of the beauty of Christ. Amen. So... Here's what I want you to realize from sacrifice. If you're willing to give up, God will help you grow up and go up. Amen. So the A was for what? Attitude. Some, some of us, myself included, we, we all need an attitude adjustment. Learn to think like Jesus. The S was for sacrifice. Give up in order to go up. The third is a really tough one for all of us. Humility. Embrace a lifestyle, a purposeful Humility. Jonathan Edwards, many of you are familiar with him. We have a quote from him. He said, the best protection one can have from the devil and his schemes is a humble heart. I thought that was brilliant because if if you're humble, um, it's hard for the devil to get to you because you're fully relying on God. I heard this tale of this pastor in America. I think this is a made up tale, but I read this story. I'm like, this is pretty interesting. His church thought that he was the most humble pastor in America. So they, they gave him this amazing necklace, and it said, to the most humble pastor in America. Unfortunately, they had to take it away from him that Sunday because he wore it to church. <laughs> Humility is one of those things, if you think you have it, you don't. It's one of those things, it's hard. But if you look at the scripture, uh, look back at verse 7. It says, but Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. And coming in the likeness of men. Now this is one of the most challenging verses to understand in this passage. Um, in your notes, made himself of no reputation. I think the King James says made himself nothing. Um, this, this, this comes from the Greek word kenosis. And this, this produces a lot of debates among scholars. And basically the question is, what did Jesus give up when he came to earth? What did he limit himself? And you have people on both sides of the spectrum. Sometimes it goes to the radical and in trying to understand this, um, I talked to one of my pastor friends, consulted a lot of commentaries. But basically, the best way I can say it is this. Jesus, when it says he made himself nothing, it's kind of the picture. It's, it's God plus something. It's God plus a human body. So, so here, here's the question. What did Jesus give up when he came to earth? Well, most scholars would say that Jesus, when he came to earth, one thing he chose not to to hold on to was being omnipresent. I mean, that's pretty common sense, right? If you're in a body, you're limited by time and space. Um, what else did he, he give up? To give up, or what? I guess the best way to say it is, what did Jesus not choose to use for his advantage? That's the best way to say it, because Jesus was fully God, even though he was fully man. It was a hundred percent of each. It wasn't like fifty percent God, fifty percent man. He was a hundred percent God and hundred percent man. So think about it. Like this, Jesus, the eternal existent Son of God, came to earth as the God-man. 
And he was used to having all power, all authority, being all present, knowing everything. And while he came to earth, he chose to not tap into certain of those attributes, even though they're at his disposal. So in other words, Jesus, as God, he still could read people's minds. But a good, a good verse to help us understand this, this mystery is Luke 2.52. It says, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. So here, here's what this verse tells us, that even though Jesus was God, when he took upon him a human body, he, choose, he chose to enter into the human race. And think about it, the, the, the creator of the world who created everything is now choosing to allow Mary to nurse him and to have his life. I mean, think about it. He created Mary, and now he's choosing to allow her to feed him and take care of him. Can you imagine that? Um, the same God that created all those 12 disciples is now building relationships with them. The same one who created them is now living a life with them and helping them. So a few things I would point down in your notes is his omniscience. At any time, uh, Jesus could tap into that, but he willingly chose not to have all knowledge all the time while he's on earth. Um, there were times where Jesus, the Bible says, he grew in wisdom and he grew in stature. So it's kind of a mystery. He was fully God, but he, the best way we could say it is this. Jesus chose not to use it for selfish purposes. He chose to serve others. So it's hard to wrap your mind around everything, but what we can say is this. Jesus never ceased to be God. He was always God, but because he came down to earth, he chose not to tap into all of his attributes so that he could love and serve and he could live the perfect life. And that's why you see verses in the Bible where it says that uh, Jesus, he said, no one knows the second coming, not, 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 not even the angels, the Father only. And we're like, well, how is that? He's God, right? Well, there are certain things that he chose not to tap into. So when you think about the next verse, it says taking the form of a bondservant. Now, I want you to think about the, the, divine, um, the divine paradox here where Jesus is Lord of all. And probably if you came down to earth, I don't know about you, but I, I would love to maybe come as the king of the greatest country, right? But Jesus didn't even come. That would be a big fall from where he was, right? But instead of coming as the highest on earth, he came as the very lowest. Have you guys ever asked yourself the question, why did Jesus come as the lowest of all? I mean, why didn't he come as a nobility or a king or a ruler? Wouldn't he have more influence? Why did he come as a simple servant? And that, that question has been in my mind throughout the years. And the only answer that I can come up with is that if Jesus came as a wealthy person, who would he relate most to? Probably wealthy people, right? If he came as a strong warrior, who would he connect with? But the fact that he came as a humble servant, everybody can appreciate someone at the very bottom, loving everyone all the way up. So whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're young or old, you can relate to Jesus because he came at the very bottom. And his goal was he wanted to come into our place and take her place so that one day we could enter his place in heaven. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Amen. So the Bible says that Jesus humbled himself even further. And it says that he became obedient to the point of death. We're in verse number eight, even death on the cross. Now, 
here's here's kind of what Jesus understood. Obviously, he's God. He understands everything he needs to understand. But one of the things he understood is that to get to heaven, you have to be perfect. That's a hard truth to swallow, isn't it? To get to heaven, you have to be perfect. Everybody in heaven is perfect. So for us who, like I said in verse 5, don't really have the mind of Christ as much as we should, how do we get to heaven if we're not perfect? You ever ask yourself that question? Well, this is where this scripture comes in, that Jesus lived a perfect life in your place because he knew that you and I wouldn't live the perfect life. And then he died on the cross, he was buried, and on the third day he rose. And we're going to talk about that in verses 9 through 11. But here's the picture. Jesus knew that to get to heaven you have to be perfect, and none of us are. So the only way to get to heaven is through Christ's perfection. And if we receive Jesus, what happens is he takes away all of our sin, past, present, and future, and he puts his perfection into our account. So when God looks at us, he sees Christ. Now the bad news is if someone hasn't received Christ, if you choose to reject Christ, that the standard's still the same. To get to heaven, you have to be perfect. And if you reject Christ, the truth is there's a place called hell that's not a, not a really good place. But the good news is Jesus doesn't want anyone to go there, and that's why he died for everybody. So that's why we really need to realize that you know, we, we need to embrace the gospel. So what does it mean to be a servant? Have you ever thought about that? Here's a servant test that's really hard. A lot of us think that we're servant, but here's how you know whether you're a true servant or not. You know when you're a true servant, when someone treats you like a servant, how you respond to it. Have you ever had anybody that just treated you horribly like a servant? I mean, think about a servant. They really, most of the time, they don't get paid. Most of the time, a servant doesn't get a thank you or a pat on the back. They're kind of in the background. So when someone treats you like a servant and you respond like a servant, then you pass the servant test. Ouch, right? All right. So H was for humility. Finally, R. Does anybody want to guess what this one is? It's on the screen. Reward. God honors the sacrifices of the faithful. So as we've laid the backdrop, Jesus eternally, the Son of God, has always been God. He took upon him a human body. He didn't give up any of his divine attributes, but he chose not to tap into all of them. And he did that for you. Look at verse 9. Here's the, here's the reward. Whenever someone humbles himself, as Jesus did, this is therefore God also highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here's the picture. The greater the humility, the greater the sacrifice, the greater the reward. First Peter 5, 6 is a good reference down your notes. It says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. So here's the picture. You can try to exalt yourself. You can try to make yourself look great. But in the end, you will be humbled. As we often have said, when, when pride walks on the stage, God walks off the stage. But if we follow the example of Christ, like I'm just going to do my part, I'm going to humble myself and let God exalt me. When God exalts you, it lasts a lot longer than when you exalt yourself or when someone else does. Amen. 
So you notice that Jesus got rewarded. And as I read through scripture, this is very practical. The God is a generous God. Matthew 25, 23, his master replied, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Listen to this. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. So I want to talk to some people who have been faithful with a few things. There's some Sunday school teachers who are sitting in here. And you've taught for year after year after year, and you've seen students come and go. And you're wondering, you know, I've been doing it for 30 years. What reward does God have for me? That verse says, if you've been faithful with a few things, God will reward you with many. So the one who works behind the scenes as a true servant, you don't get any accolades, you don't get any applause. Notice that if you've been faithful with a few things... When you get into the next life, God's going to reward you. What about to the prayer warrior? Prayer warriors pray without anyone knowing, right? They're in their prayer closet, the door shut, and they're seeing lives change. I think when you get to heaven, this is my maybe sanctified speculation, but I think there's going to be a line of people that were touched by your prayers. If you've been faithful in a few things, I'll give you responsibility of many things. What about to the soul winner? What about the person that wants to see his friends and his neighbors come to Christ. When you get to heaven, there's going to be a long line waiting for you that people will say, if it wasn't for your witness, if it wasn't for you sharing Christ with me, I wouldn't be here today. Amen. What about to the faithful giver? Because of your gifts to the kingdom, ministry happens. God's going to say, you know what? You you couldn't take the money with you, but you did send it ahead. Look at all these lives you've impacted. Look at all these people that you've touched through your giving. To the single mom that you raised your child and it was hard. And no one knew that you were working two and three jobs, but you did it anyways. And you loved that child and you did your best to raise that child up in church and to show that child the way. When you get to heaven, imagine what award awaits you. To the hardworking dad, you work this job and it's, it's really hard because at work you're not celebrated. At work, it's like the rat race. You come home all wore out, but yet you still have to do the responsibility at home. If you're faithful in a few things, I will make you ruler of many things. What about to the senior adult? You know, this is the time when it's retirement is a time to kick back and enjoy yourself. But what about for the senior adult who says retirement is maybe for my job, but it's not from the Lord. And during this season of life where I have more time and where I have more opportunity, I'm going to pour myself into the kingdom like never before. What would happen when you get to heaven? So I want to read in closing. I want to read this uh, written by a 14-year-old. And I wish as a 14-year-old I thought this deeply. But if you change your mind, you change your life. And many of us are always wanting the next greatest thing. So this is uh, to all of us who always want the next thing. This is called Present Tense, and it's written by Jason Lee Heyman. He says, It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. And we're going to relate to this next line. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. I hear many of us saying this even now. It's fall time. Ready for summer. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow. And the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted. The warmth of the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted. 
the freedom and the respect. I was in my 20s, but it was in my 30s that I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, and it was the 20s I wanted, the youth and the free-spirited. I was retired, and it was the middle age I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life is over, and I never got what I wanted. A 14-year-old wrote that. So here's the question as we just briefly review attitude. Are we willing to think like Jesus? Because life is passing by too quickly. Sacrifice. Jesus gave up all for us. What are we willing to give up for him? Humility. Are we going to embrace this lifestyle of purposeful humility? And reward. Remember that whatever you do for Christ, he rewards you. So change your mind and change your life. Let's pray. Father, your word is challenging. Lord, we, we covered a lot of complex passage today. I realize that. And even as we talked about how Jesus was fully God and fully man and he never gave up his, any part of his God aspects, but he chose not to use it all the time unless the father permitted him. He, he was at his father's will. God, that's a mystery and it's hard to wrap our small minds around the mystery of God becoming man. And Father, as I pray, I, I just pray that you would help us. I realize, Lord, there's many here that would say, Timothy, I need to start thinking more like Jesus. I need to have the mind of Christ help me. Or some of you would relate to the sacrifice that you really haven't given up much for Christ. He's given up all, but you've given up just fractions. And today he's saying, I want all of you. And Father, help us remember reward that whatever we do for you will be rewarded. Father, I pray that we won't be wanting the next thing, but we'll be focused on what you're doing now and we'll live our lives today in view of eternity. If there be one here today with everyone praying, no one looking around that has never received Jesus, as I mentioned, to get to heaven, you have to be perfect. The only way we can be perfect is through Christ's perfection given to us. If you're willing to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, no one looking around, just ask him now to come into your life. Say something like, dear Jesus, I realize I'm far from perfect. I've realized that I've sinned and I've fallen short of you. And Jesus, I pray that you would forgive me. I believe that you are my Lord and I want to make you my Savior. I want to make you my Lord and my Savior. So Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my life. I give you my all. I pray that you would take my imperfection and nail it to your cross. And thank him. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. I pray that today as we discuss this immensely theological passage, that it would have practical implications. That if we could change your mind, we can change your life. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This time, if you'd please stand, we're at our time of the hymn of invitation. If you have any prayer requests, we'd love to pray with you. If you'd like to join the church, this is the time you can come forward. If you pray to receive Christ, we'd love to hear about it. Adam and I will be at the front as you come down.